Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. This is one of your co-hosts, Eleanor Rangers, welcoming you to another episode of Space 3D. Today, Susan Ip Jewell is our guest, and we delve into a bit of the future of space exploration medical capabilities, discussing crew skill sets needed for successful missions, the value of analog environments for training, and the emerging use of 3D printing of surgical tools and beyond. Welcome to Space 3D. Uh, this evening, we have a very special guest, uh, Susan Ip Jewell, and she's been involved in the areas of space exploration, healthcare, STEAM education, and astropreneurship for many years. She's a space research scientist and an alumni of Singularity University and the International Space University. Susan is trained in analog astronautics and analog research, space health and wellness, and exponential technologies. She's accrued strong marketing and social media skills and her background in building leadership teams plus excellent business and interpersonal communication skills has led to the formation of Mars Academy USA, Mars Without Borders, and the Space Surgery Institute. These organizations are focused on technological and innovative concepts and R&D in order to improve quality of life in space and on Earth. And additionally, they're platforms for promoting STEAM education and outreach and pioneering visionary ideas to support human space exploration and future settlements on Mars and the moon. Currently, uh, Susan is focused on developing a 21st century academy, offering experiential learning and unique simulation programs for next-gen young astronauts, professionals, scientists, and astropreneurs. Her long-term vision is to develop the first commercial astronaut corps, where the organization will provide services to commercial space industries. She is also the recipient of many awards, including the Marie Marvinkt Award in Technologies and Innovations for Space, sponsored by the Aerospace Medical Association, which recognizes pioneering visionaries in space exploration. In addition, she also has received the National Space Foundation's Living in Space Award for pioneering future space innovations and enabling development of Martian settlements. Finally, uh, Dr. Ipjul is also the founder of The Clinic, an integrated wellness and telemedicine company based in Los Angeles. So with that, welcome. Thank you so much. And uh, it's, a, it's such an honor to be part of your program. Yeah, we very much appreciate it. And uh, you're actually one of our first guests this season who is basically going to be speaking about, I think, some of the future and aspirational things related to medical care in space. So we're very excited to uh, chat with you about what the future is going to look like. Yes, I'm really excited too. And I really want to spread the, the, um, the vision and the innovation in pioneering this field in space uh, medicine, health and wellness, uh, incorporating exponential technologies. And I think that is uh, the future to enable us to develop the uh, countermeasures and to overcome some of the very uh, major challenges for humans to, you know, in my in my words, to to not just survive but thrive in space for long duration missions. And you know, I I see in our lifetime humans to set foot on Mars. Of course, going back to the moon first, right, as beta testing, and then literally, you know, build permanent settlements uh, on on Mars. 
All right, fantastic. Well, as we uh, talked about, we usually have a series of questions that we'd like to uh, pose to generate discussion. So I think we can go ahead and dive into some of those if that sounds like a plan to you. Yes, it's really exciting. Let's move on. All right. Um, so our first question is, you have a rather interesting background, entertainer, entrepreneur, and physician. How would you say your life experiences and training from these different activities uh, and professions impacted where you've wound up today? Yeah, you know, that is a really great question. And uh, for me and, you know, how I see my worldview today is based on all the different various experiences, you know, of my life journey to date. I think, you know, if we are to successfully manifest this vision of, uh, you know, becoming interplanetary species and to successfully colonize, you know, an off-world planet is to have individuals who have this wider worldview based on their various experiences. So to, you know, really have training in both the academic, in the professional setting, in entertainment as well, right? It's really basically using both sides of your hemisphere, right? Your brain. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, being able to collect all that experience and, and then to enable you to see when you face with challenges and problems to, I guess, be more out of the box thinking because you're able to tap into these various different areas of your experiences and the communities that you've engaged in. So I think a transdisciplinary, not even the word interdisciplinary, but more of this new word transdisciplinary is where, you know, the future would be to be able to enable a new paradigm in terms of creating teams that are coming in from many different non-related uh, disciplines and working together to solve problems. I think this is absolutely where the future is, uh, not only for space exploration, but in the workforce of how we should work together collaboratively in this kind of transdisciplinary approach to address problems and to solve solve issues uh, for space and for Earth. So I think in terms of you know, having such a varied background uh, where I am today, actually, you know, all that's culminated building this passion that I have today with, with the organizations and startups I'm part of. So, yeah, ent entertainment is really, you know, I think part of driving that passion because if you don't have the joy and the fun in what you do, whatever it is, that really, you know, boredom sets in and boredom is actually a major you know, I would say a killer of, you know, of passion and uh, and uh, also creativity. So being an edu edutainment, uh, which is part of edutainment, uh, entertainment and education. So this new word of entertainment is certainly part of my vision because of the fact that I was involved in that field, in those fields, as well as then, you know, trans uh, transferring into a very purely, very scientific academic profession. So I'm able to merge the two because I've been involved in, in these areas and then be able to connect, connect these different disciplines mm. together. And that's part, part of what I'm really very passionate about is to be able to impart this to the next generation, um, you know, of um, uh, part of the leadership for the next generation and students and, and uh, general public or the professionals. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Would you say, um, I mean, certainly your background is very unique, but for aspiring individuals to be space settlers, what would you say? It sounds like you're definitely pro multidisciplinary background, but is there a combination of 
of skills, either life skills or professional training that you think is ideal for, for these individuals? I think for the future of any sort of uh, individuals interested in being part of base settlement uh, or slash colonization, I don't like to use that word, <laughs> uh, but uh, to, to settle successfully on an off-world planet, um, it really, really does need uh, a group of individuals uh, that have these, uh, you know, multiple skill sets and, and, and to be able then to work collaboratively together. And even what we do now with, um, you know, building these um, simulation, analog astronautic simulation training that we offer is that we look at uh, individuals and we select for for those individuals that can be complementary with others. So it doesn't mean that you have to go through many, many different areas, but certainly you, you cannot come in with just one specialization or one uh, discipline in your, your expertise in. You normally would have to you know, have multiple uh, uh, areas of expertise or knowledge or skill sets and uh, based both on, you know, professional as well as personal. So I think if we are to really successfully settle and build uh, settlements on off-world planets on Mars or Moon, we need to find these individuals that they have to pre-train together, live together, work together for a period of time on simulated analog environments on Earth uh, before they are, you know, we're actually going to send them off, be part of these missions, right? Early, the early pioneers, I'm saying. So I, I think definitely individuals need to have multiple skills, various backgrounds and bring that into, into the group. Okay. Well, you said something very interesting about that you think that in the part of the training, it's a little bit different than I think what's been traditionally done for training, um, is that living in analog environments. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit into the type of analogs you think are appropriate and maybe even commenting on, you know, the Mars Society has their two research stations. People have certainly wintered over in Antarctica. You know, you have submariners as a potential analog. But I'm wondering if you could comment on that as well. Yeah. So, you know, what we call analog astronauts and analog environments on Earth, analog environments have some kind of similarity, whether it's the geological terrain or the weather, you know, that has some kind of similarity to Mars or the moon, right, at this point in time. And then so we use those areas that we select for on Earth, for example, some analogs of obviously the deserts, right? The Utah desert here in California, Mojave, and also, you know, uh, the sea, the Nemo projects, which is, you know, the, the water is an analog of, of, of space because of the buoyancy, right? So it's the simulation gives you that sort of a, a sensation of floating in space. So, and also Antarctica and Everest, because of the altitude, the pressure, the weather, extreme weather, you know, can be an analog of Mars or the moon because of the extreme temperatures and, and altitude. So, so we call these analog on Earth, where we then deploy teams, or we call it analog astronauts, crew missions uh, under false immersive simulation. And we deploy them out there for a period of time, and they live and work together um, you know, for the, un, under that mission, or so-called quote-unquote mission or expedition. And they basically, you know, look at, we also look at the human factors as well as developing technology, developing the communications, you know, but also looking at human factors and at the health and safety of these individuals living under these 
analog scenarios, where these are kind of like the precursor scenarios for eventual developing missions for humans to literally go into, well, first of all, we would say low Earth orbit when we have you know, maybe the Bigelow inflatables that we have commercial space stations or eventually to the moon, um, you know, which is currently under plan to build the first moon station and, and then, you know, then to deep space missions to Mars. So, you know, before you want to deploy a humans to go to these very dangerous extreme environments, you're going to want to test them out here you know, not only the technology and the supporting, you know, uh, procedures that you're going to have to develop, but also you want to look at what are the challenges in terms of the humans living in isolation confinement for a long period of time. So there's that aspect of, you know, and my passion is, you know, how can we select in or select out individuals under these testing scenarios just to find the right mix of crew teams to actually eventually deploy them for these Mm -hmm. missions, right? So... So that's, I think, is very important and uh, is is another layer that we need to look at besides all the engineering and building the rockets and building the architecture. You know, the human side in the in this equation is actually very one of the most important, you know, components of the equation. And I think to me, the most limiting factor in us trying to really successfully manifest humans becoming interplanetary you know, species and, and to colonize, uh, live in space and, and colonize uh, a, a North yeah. planet is the human factor. Yeah, I would agree with that. Actually, another gentleman that we had interviewed earlier this season, uh, Jim Logan, who used to work with NASA, he actually refers to human factors as the quote unquote tall pole in the tent. In one of the ideas I had in uh, one of the stories I was working on, I had the idea of putting together a group of talented people and tell them you have to form teams of five in order to, you know, for the mission and see how well they formed teams together to let the, the people who find out they work well together, you know, let them form the teams. I'm curious if you'd have any comments on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, but you wouldn't want to deploy them in very dangerous, extreme environments. You know, uh, you, you, I mean, this is kind of what we're doing, first of all, with Mars Academy USA is to offer low fidelity so that it, it's a portal for individuals who might be interested in this field or for people who have not had the experience, uh, you know, in full isolation confinement in a simulation. So, so you allow them to go into low fidelity missions, which is what we offer. And then from that, you can actually select uh, select out for those who are not suited for what we call more mid fidelity or you know things uh, missions that have higher risks. You know, I'm really talking about you know going to Kilimanjaro, going to Everest Base Camp. I mean, you've got to be fully trained and also be very cognizant of the dangers involved. I mean, you literally can lose your life. So when you talk about forming these crews, yes, I think it's a wonderful idea, um, but it's got to be in the right setting, in the right area, and for for the right you know, level of, of, of expertise or, or experience you've had. And so this is where I saw the, you know, where there, I saw the, the, there was a demand for those kind of offering those kind of opportunities and experiences for the general public and for the professional setting, but there was very little supply. And so out of, you know, out of that, I, I recognized that there was an opportunity to build, you know, 
uh, this pathway, I guess, at this point uh, for those individuals to engage at the very start. If you're a novice, or you're a newbie and you're just interested, then, you know, you can come and have this opportunity. It's relatively safe. It's a short term because you're, you've got to think, right, when you're actually going to be in a mission, in a crew, whether in a spacecraft or, or in, a, in a habitat on an off-world planet, uh, you're going to live in total isolation and confinement with a small group of people that you better know how to get on with. And not only that, you've got to understand and be aware and, and learn the skills of how to deal with your own issues, right? And so unless you've gone through one of these fully immersive you know, simulation experiences, I wouldn't want to pick individuals just out from a, you know, application, you know, um, a pool of, of cohort and say, okay, well, you're going to be in this and you're going to be in this mission. I think you've got to have training right from the start. And then that individual will be able to say, yes, I'm interested or no, I'm not be based on that, what the outcome of that very, you know, experiences. So I think the idea of forming small crews and select them into these cohorts and go into missions is great. Um, but I think you've got to have a very determined pathway, right? Where each pathway is, is incremental uh, and, and progressive in terms of the, the, the learning skills they're going to acquire, the, 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 the human factors they're going to learn, um, the communication, the collaboration, all these of factors that you've got to uh, offer and to, and for the individual to engage in, then you can make this a true assessment of how you can pick the individuals for crew missions. Turning to the specific organizations that you've developed, tell us a little bit about those groups, you know, the Mars Academy, Wars Without Borders and Space Surgery Institute, and how they have been received by those that have participated uh, in those organizations. Right. Um, yeah, so for these organizations, I mean, the, 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 the common thread going through them is the ability to innovate, to give you the ability to uh, have experiential interactions and to innovate and be creative. The differences between the three is, of course, you know, Mars Academy, I've just explained, is to offer to a more wider audience, uh, general public, both from, you know, the public sector all the way to academics and to corporate entities, right? So they can come in and they can engage at various levels in, in our, you know, short workshops or in our, you know, analog simulations, fully immersive simulations, and they can engage and choose, right? And so that's, that's, you know, that's what Mars Academy sort of, you know, vision is. The whole idea of the sort of the Mars Academy USA Mars Medic missions is a whole series is to, uh, enable us to find the crews to actually go and deploy in, you know, the high fidelity, uh, analog environments like, like Everest and Antarctica, which we're planning currently for 2019. So this will be very interesting. And of mm. course, the whole, sort of mid and long-term vision of this is to be able to test out uh, on the International Space Station. And, and of course, you know, within the next 10, 15 years, when we build the first moon uh, station, which is happening, to be able to deploy the train, you know, our group of, you know, medical space medicine uh, astronauts to, to actually, you know, uh, maintain that station there. I guess in a way to build the first space clinic is what I, I'm very, very excited about and to have collaborators in this field uh, to work with us to do that. That will be really exciting. And then um, Mars Without Borders is 
purely an R&D and it's only open to um, the scientific sector and a very people who are very much more sort of engaged in this um, space sort of STEAM discipline, right? Where they already are part of, whether it's a university they're part of or they're part of space-related organization, they already conducting projects or have a scientific project that they want to bring in. Mars Without Borders have, you know, brought several teams to the Utah desert at the Mars Desert Research Station over the last few years. And then Space Surgery Institute, well, it's kind of, you know, the name says what it is. And our tagline for that is innovation for exploration. And that's many different levels. It's not just for space exploration. It's also, you know, exploring technology and innovation for life on Earth. And so that obviously is very much a focus on anything that uh, we developed or uh, improving state of the art for, for medicine and health for space and for Earth. So that's really um, the, the kind of differentiator between those three organizations. But the continuing theme through all three years about allowing you to be creative, being innovative and, you know, having a experience. The whole idea of the sort of the Mars Academy USA Mars Medic missions, this is a whole series, is to uh, enable us to find the crews to actually go and deploy in, you know, the high fidelity uh, analog environments like, like Everest and Antarctica, which we're planning currently for 2019. So this will be very interesting. And of mm. course, the whole sort of mid and long term vision of this is to be able to test out uh, on the International Space Station. And, and of course, you know, within the next 10, 15 years, when we build the first moon uh, station, which is happening, to be able to deploy the train, you know, our group of, you know, medical space medicine uh, astronauts to to actually, you know, uh, maintain that station there. I guess in a way to build the first space clinic is what I, I'm very, very excited about and to have collaborators in this field uh, to work with us to do that. That will be really exciting. Okay. Actually, related to the surgical question, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the work that's going with 3D mm -hmm. printing. And you probably know Julie Lynn Wong up in uh, Toronto. Curious about whether you've done any work with 3D printing of instruments, a little bit about what materials are being used to create those instruments. And also very critical, how do you propose that these would be sterilized for use either in space or on a settlement? Yeah, so um, a great question, and it's the future. 3D printing has now opened up the possibility of really of uh, human space uh, settlement but to have the ability to 3d print when you need it uh, to re reduce payload of course you know that's one of the huge limiting factors is the payload to overcome the earth's you know gravity uh, well um, and and the cost of that so now 3d printing has enabled us to do that so with regards to 3d printing obviously you know you could see it fits very well for space exploration and in particular for printing you know medical tools life support system tools when you need it and um and so this is what we've been doing coming out of singularity university of course you know made in space um which are my co uh, colleagues who also came out of uh, uh, su there at nasa Ames, and we've you know we're working with them and with their partners first of all we built a prototype which is at uh, trl or 
technology-ready leveners, which is what NASA uses as a skill. The last couple of years, we've actually developed the first solar-powered 3D printer. So we tested out at MDRS, and we're testing this out at our, our facility here at Mars Academy USA. And we've, we 3D printed um, certain basic instruments at this point, you know, scalpels, knives, right, to incorporate into our telesurgery simulation training, which has worked really well. We are also working, you know, with, with MAU, uh, with uh, MIS, uh, the Made in Space, where they have their 3D printer on the International Space Station. So we're one of the partners that we're working with, which is uh, Dr. Ishikita and Dr. Salikrup. They have come up with an email ventilator. And we're testing that in our simulation training for the non-medical crews. And mm -hmm. giving you a be better idea is now you can literally imagine, right, that uh, surgery in space, and by the way, surgery in space is still a huge major challenge, right? It's, there, there are currently really no standard contingency plan to implement surgery in space because of all the, you know, the challenges of microgravity. And we're talking just microgravity, not even deep space, uh, long duration missions when you have to be autonomous and have no communication with, you know, the medical uh, flight surgeons and their, that team. So even now, there's still, that's a huge major challenge is how do you implement or how do you offer you know, medical or surgical intervention for life-threatening emergencies on the ISS or on the moon surface or, you know, during your transit to, to moon and Mars. Well, that is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we're trying to address, that problem. How do we do it? <clears throat> you know, so let's go back to the, you know, the ventilator. When you have surgery, if you're going to do anything invasive with surgery, right, in space, well, you're going to think you're going to have to put the person under anesthesia, right? If anybody has really been to, into an OR operating room, you know one of the biggest problems. You see the instruments of, you know, anesthesia, anesthesia, the instruments are huge, there are computer systems and, and the instruments, you know, it's just, just the payload of that. It's just impossible, right? To, to, to imagine having a real clinic on the space station or, or, or on a uh, spacecraft, right? So with this uh, idea of this partner we're working with, um, and they're all physicians, aerospace and uh, space medicine physicians, and also innovators. So they developed a, what we call the email ventilator. So it's a 3D printed vent, uh, anesthesia uh, induction device that's 3D printed. So you can email the files. And by the way, it has been tested and printed on the ISS with a made in space uh, printer. So it works. And it was tested in zero G parabolic flight last year. So now we're going to say, can we use this in a anesthesia simulation training with non-medical crews? So that's what we're doing currently. When you get the files, you 3D print this ventilation device, and then you, you train the crew to use it and to, to be able to induce anesthesia for the, for the injured astronaut before you proceed to do the surgical intervention. So this is what we're doing. This is what we're testing, the viability and the feasibility of using 3D printed medical tools and now we're taking it to the next level of literally being part of a, a surgical intervention not just printing out some medical device or you know and, and simple right. instruments i mean right. literally providing that level degree of you know of um, integration into a surgical intervention now if if one is able to do that i think we're one step closer to be able to say yes 
we'll be able to offer some kind of surgical management of life-threatening injuries. And you know that's going to be a very high risk of that happening in these dangerous environments. Now, you also got to think, right, Eleanor, that we're not just thinking about space because everything that you develop, you innovate for space exploration, must have direct benefits and spin-off for life on Earth. So you can see the application of these ideas, these concepts and these technology for remote areas on Earth, right? And where there's a natural disaster or in wartime, where you're able to now, you know, apply these these uh, um, ideas and these technology for, for, for saving lives in these particular scenarios. So we're very excited. And 3D printing, and, we're, and we haven't even talked about 4D printing is what we're working on as well, 3D and 4D printing, which is basically self-assembly of, of uh, intelligent material, source material that it can, you know, form into a final structure when it's in a catalytic environment that you pre-program that material for. So that's just, you know, another layer of where we're going with innovation and technology. On behalf of my co-hosts, Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Space 3D. Join us for our next podcast, where we continue our discussion of future space medical capabilities with Susan Ipjul.